This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books. I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones and with me as he is every week is Matthew Rushing, who is dripping wet. Apparently, Matthew, you've been swimming with the Urinthi or whatever they're called over in the Gamma Quadrant apparently. Chris, I just got back. Whew, man, I just made it. Uh, I, I was not able to well, obviously, get dry, as I would have hoped. Um, so, luckily, it's uh, it's not too chilly here this evening, so I don't think I'll catch cold or anything. I, I don't good. think the listeners will mind. Luckily, nobody can see me except you. That's great. That's great. So, what are your plans? Are you going to pop open a nice Oktoberfest beer and get some kelp cakes to go with it? Well, I got to say... Um, I actually have been enjoying some Oktoberfest beer recently. I, I uh, procured my first batch of Samuel Adams the other day, Chris, and goodness, it's been fantastic. I really do love Oktoberfest. I don't know about you, but it's like well, my I, favorite time of year for beer. I look forward to autumn beers here in Japan as well every year because I like pale L, which is not so easy to get and Almost no one in Japan actually makes pale ale themselves, but the autumn beers are kind of close. So we've got that little window of time every year where I can enjoy those. <laughs> well, kelp cakes and swimming and all, that's related to what we're going to talk about in the feature today as we continue our look at the Deep Space Nine relaunch series with Mission Gamma, This Gray Spirit, which takes place in the ocean for quite a bit of it. But uh, before we do that, Matthew, we've got to talk about a couple of news items here. And we're going to kick it off with one of our most popular segments, Judge a Book by its Cover. We're judging the book by its cover. (laughs) Short and sweet. And the cover this time, just looking at this cover cracks me up because of the grin that Quark has as right above his head are the words, Lust's Latinum, Lost and Found. Chris, I just love that this is the cover. Uh, he has that kind of like nefarious grin right. on his face that uh-huh. Quirk's known for. There's the beauty of the brand new Deep Space Nine station in the background as well with, yep. uh, I think, just the the uh, spectacular nature of, of like maybe the wormhole behind it and you know, Chris, I think the most exciting thing about this cover, the thing that makes it sufficiently exciting, that's right, folks, 
is that it says Star Trek Deep Space Nine for the first time on a cover since 2009. I know. It's amazing, right? And it is the same logo type that they used for the relaunch series, that that different style from what they had on the TV show. It's the first thing I noticed, actually, when I saw the cover, because wherever I was, uh, Trek Collective, wherever I saw it first, I only saw the top part of the cover. And I thought, oh, there, that's the Deep Space Nine logo from the books. And then I scrolled down and I saw it was, in fact, this new ebook coming from Paula and Terry and said, wow, this is what we've been waiting for. Uh, yeah, this is so exciting. And I love that uh, Paula and Terry are going to be working on um, this new e-novella. I mean, they've done some great Star Trek books, but uh, they haven't done a lot of novels. And so right. this being something new from them, I, I mean, my favorite book of theirs has to be the Star Trek Deep Space Nine companion. Absolutely. Which, yeah. I mean, hands down, the best companion out there. Um, mm -hmm. There is a wealth of information. In fact, honestly, Memory Alpha for Deep Space Nine is mostly a regurgitation yeah, of what everybody read in the companion. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is. It is. Except, I will say, if you generally go to Memory Alpha to read about Deep Space Nine episodes, even though most of the information on there is from the companion, go buy the companion because the presentation of it in the companion is so much better and you actually will understand the thought process of the writers more if you read what Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman wrote in The Companion instead of reading what people ripped off and typed onto Memory Alpha. Oh, yeah, Chris. I mean, if you're going to have one Star Trek nonfiction book on your shelf, it needs to be the Deep Space Nine Companion. It really is spectacular. There is... I don't think a better nonfiction Star Trek book. Um, it, it's it's so well documented. Terry mm -hmm. was on the set for almost the entire time of the run of Deep Space Nine, mm -hmm. getting interviews like nobody else. Yeah, um, it That's really does so feel good. like you're in the midst. Of yeah, the making he's of like the, show. the inside man all the way through, which is what sets it apart from the others. But but we're not here to talk about that book today, actually. Although, boy, if you get Matthew and me talking about the Deep Space Nine Companion, that's a whole show right there. Every week. It probably is. Just, let's just do that every week. <laughs> I don't think listeners <laughs> want to hear that. So no, this book here, though, the, the reason that it's so funny that Quark has this look on his face is, of course, because the story is about him trying to get the latest Vulcan love slave Holosuite program. Which, oh my goodness... I think, you know, we were talking to David Mack the other week and uh, just about the fun that the Seekers series is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that fun is really coming back to Star Trek books. There has mm -hmm. been a lot of political um, nature to the books. There's mm -hmm. There's been a lot of kind of doom and gloom. I mean, we're still going to get some pretty heavy books. I mean, Disavowed is coming out soon from mm -hmm. David Mack about uh, Section 31. But there's a lot of fun coming out, too. I remember Dayton even talking about that with his new Next Generation book, um, yeah. Armageddon's Arrow, I believe it's called. And so, and him talking about really wanting to get back to that whole exploratory nature. I mean, yeah. we always think about what Picard talks about. They don't do a lot of exploring on the Enterprise uh, these days. And right. So it's time to get out there and do some of that. So, But Matthew, you know there are plenty of politicians out there that want to have Vulcan love slave. This is true, which I, I uh, 
I think um, they hope will keep them out of trouble, and and therefore Quark is is on the new Deep Space Nine. He's looking to um, boost sales. Uh, you know, uh, attendance has been down with everybody going to hang out at the new Deep Space Nine parks and sports fields and swimming complexes and all this jazz. Mm-hmm. Well, he is ready to have something that people want. You remember, Chris, when we were talking to Jeff Lang, when he he had Vic Fontaine show up and mm-hmm. the fact that Vic Fontaine is still in, you know, right. basically a box. Yeah. They haven't been able to integrate him with the new Deep Space Nine. I feel like that a Quark could get Vic back. He might have more people coming to his hollow suites because, remember, Vic was a pretty big draw. Mm-hmm. I would like to see that e-novella because I miss Vic being around in Deep Space Nine as well. Yeah, so maybe we'll get that soon. Margaret, if you're listening, we would love to have an e-novella about Vic. <laughs> That's going to be the name of our shows, too. Margaret, if you're listening, just it's going to come well, we, up a lot. We actually named an episode recently, We Hope Margaret is Listening. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's an actual episode name. So I like this cover. I, the design's great. Seeing Star Trek Deep Space Nine on there again is great. The new station looks great. And the, the the only thing I can't tell here is this looks like it's probably a stock image of Quark that's been photoshopped in. So when you see the real cover, you know, it's kind of hard to tell if the quality of the image is going to mesh with the station behind and, and Quark himself. So we'll see on that. Just in terms of a design standpoint, that's just kind of the one thing that might might take it down one notch for me. But overall, yeah, I really like it. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, uh, Chris, um, last week when we had David on, we we talked a lot about the art for Seekers. And so I was so excited to come across this on the Trek Collective that they had an interview with Rob Caswell about his art for Seekers. And Trek Collective does a great job of asking some fantastic questions about just the thought process behind this, how, uh, you know... He got into it, obviously, and then, of course, what goes into making these covers as opposed to, you know, just being somebody who's doing the art for fun. Mm-hmm. I really recommend this, especially if you enjoyed the artwork for Seekers and you're excited about what's coming next. Uh, I really had a good time reading this interview, so I just wanted to make everybody aware that this was out there. And I, I think that this really goes to validate all of those people who who enjoy playing around with, you know, their photoshops and everything and, and decent artists, you never know what you could inspire. And the fact that he inspired an entire series is just pretty mm-hmm. impressive. It really, really is. So that's cool. So we'll put a link to this in the show notes over on the Trek Collective. And they publish a lot of stuff on there. So, you know, it's going to get pushed down. So if you don't see it, if you just go there and you don't see it, just search for Rob Caswell, C-A-S-W-E-L-L, or Art of Seekers, and it'll come up. Or go to the show page for Literary Treks for this episode, and you can click through. One more little item we have today, Matthew, is about the official Starships collection, which I talk about a lot because I'm collecting them. My desk is becoming a virtual space dock. I've got eight ships in front of me right now and, and adding Chris new is, ones is, all the time. If you collect your your uh, starships right now, I've been collecting the little mini mates. Oh, yeah. I've got all the captains now. There's so. Captain Archer. Yep. All right. So, and uh, like you, I, I have actually got a few of these on order now. So I have the Prometheus. Um, I've got, um, oh, what else do I have on order? 
some of the other ships that just they're hard to find things like uh, I'm thinking that you know when the Enterprise C comes out I'll be getting that because where can you find a great model of the Enterprise C unless you build it yourself and I'm a rubbish painter so uh, it it never looks right so you go around painting trash uh, no 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 just <laughs> mean the my my actual it I meant that when the that kind of in the British way Chris yeah. um, Michael Clark will probably know what I'm talking about. I'm a rubbish painter. <laughs> I like to paint rubbish. <laughs> so, yeah, but they're great. And what this story is about is the USS Titan. Now, Sean Taranjo, our friend Sean Taranjo, created the Titan as part of the contest that was being run a number of years ago by CBS and Pocketbooks, and he won the contest. And the Titan is, of course, anyone listening to this show knows, of course, that it's Riker's ship. But it's a canon ship. It's mentioned at the end of Nemesis. It has appeared on many book covers, comics. It's in Star Trek Online, I believe. It's, it is. They made a bigger model to tour with the exhibition. The ship is out there all over the place. And yet, currently, Eagle Moss has no plans to make the Titan. Now, they have said, and I think this was also in an interview on the Trek Collective, Matthew, that... It was. They they said that if they get 5,000 signatures from people who promised that they would buy a Titan if they made one, then they would almost certainly do it. And this was actually uh, said by Ben Robinson, who is the manager for the official Starships collection at Eagle Moss. And I'm sure there are 5,000 people out there who want to buy this ship. I've gone and signed. Matthew, I know you have. Heck and yeah, I want a Titan. We want to make sure that everyone who wants this ship goes and signs this petition because I think there's more than 5,000 people out there, of course, who would want to buy this. And what I don't get, Matthew, though, is that they make ships like the Thunder Child. And they make obscure ships as well that have appeared in various series, obscure alien ships. And yet, to get the Titan made, we've got this petition thing going on. Don't you find it strange that the Titan isn't already slated as something they would make? Uh, Chris, I, I'm with you. I mean, um, you know, would you rather have the Titan or the Cardassian Hedinki class, which is <laughs> going to be coming out? It's number 33. Yeah. It's going to be coming out. So, to me, it's a no-brainer. That, that we would want to have something like the Titan or yeah. um, for me personally, I'm a huge fan of the Aventine from, yeah. from the book series. And in fact, that's another ship that's on Star Trek on, online as well. And, and so um, there are some great ships out there um, that are not necessarily, uh, I mean, Titan is canon, but you know, the mm -hmm. Enterprise F or yeah. something like that. Which mm -hmm. I'm not a big fan of the design of the Enterprise F, so I don't really want that yeah. one. But you know, give me the Aventine, give me the Titan, give me some of those ships like that that we've only heard about or seen in books. Or I know how many people would like a copy of the uh, Excalibur from the New Frontier series or yeah. the Da Vinci from Starfleet Corps of Engineers. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many great ships that we've seen mm -hmm. uh, throughout the Starfleet novels or the Star Trek novels that we've gotten. And that people really love. They have a great affinity for it. And of course, they're not really that hard to do if you're already going to make a Saber class ship. You know, just pop the Da Vinci's number on there. I mean, right. what a great idea. Yeah. Or, you know, make another Enterprise D, but just 
pop the the number and the 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 name of the Excalibur. Right. So yeah. some of these things aren't really that difficult. Sure. Um, you know, I I think I don't know why, especially the lit fans. That, you know, there I know there's five thousand of you out there. So let's get this signed. Let's yeah. get our Titan. The next one coming up for us here in Japan, by the way, is the Klingon Katinga class battle cruiser. And someone asked me on Twitter a couple days ago, have you ever wondered why that ship has that really long, long, narrow neck? And the reason is, what I think it is, is that they want to keep the bridge and engineering really separated for safety. And what happens is you have to climb into a tube that's kind of like those things you have at the bank that you put your money in and then it sucks it up. When you want to yes. go to engineering, you have to climb into one of those, press a button, and it shoots you through all the way to the back That'd of the ship. That would be awesome. Yeah. You got to keep them separated. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned Cardassians. What I want is the one that's mentioned in the book we're going to talk about shortly here in the future, the Cardassian Gator class. Did you notice that? No, I didn't, but I'm hoping that that was just a typo. <laughs> it was. This, the the okay. ebook version of This Gray Spirit is filled with typos, and one of them, they mentioned the Cardassian Gator class. Man, that that is a really <laughs> great ship. I mean, it can it can actually just chomp in half other ships. Yeah. It's fantastic. Well, you so, know, the, the most famous captain was, of course, a Captain Steve Spurrier. Uh, yeah there you go uh so just watch out folks uh you, you never know when you're going to run across a uh, gator class ship yeah yeah so this petition is at petitionbuzz.com and we'll put a link in the show notes but if you go to petitionbuzz.com slash petitions slash uss titan you'll get there and you can put your name on the list and you know we're getting close to a thousand names so a long way to go but I know there are plenty of people out there that want to Titan. So please go sign this because I really want to have Sean's ship on my desk well, right here with Chris, the others. Just think about this. I mean, it would be pretty exclusive if they only did, say, 5,000 of them. Mm. So it would be one of those things that you would see maybe at a convention that would be running you like $100, especially like mint in box, you know, the kind of thing that yeah. the real fan wants to have. So I'm just saying, okay. this is going to be one of those things I think um, would, would become one of those legends in collecting. All right. Well, I just want it made as a normal ship that's going to run me 2,500 yen at the bookstore personally. Chris, I'm with <laughs> you. I just want it to be sitting on my desk or, you know, on my shelf. Um, and you know, as you've been showing me, they, they do great work and, um, to have something like the Titan, I think would just be yeah. fantastic. So that would be, that would be I great. appreciate these guys putting this position together. So that's all we have in news here. And we're going to go into the feature momentarily, as we've mentioned, and talk about this gray spirit, which is the second book in the deep space nine mission gamma series. Before we do that, we'd like to tell you about two things, actually. Uh, the first is Patreon. We need your support to keep the shows coming to you each week. And we have a new home on Patreon where you can stream our shows and you can actually get early access to some of our shows and get some other exclusive content that's only available to patrons of the network. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a lot like Kickstarter, except instead of being a single project... 
It is a way for you to support the creatives that you love on a monthly basis. So you can go and choose an amount that you would like to contribute to the network each month, and that will be a recurring thing. And you can contribute anything from a dollar to whatever amount you want. And we've outlined different contribution milestone levels and the perks that you get in exchange for those. And we have a lot of great stuff for you, ranging from on the low end, digital wallpapers, all the way up to associate producer credits and opportunity to sit in on show recordings as well, and even to be part of our content planning committee. So we have a lot of great benefits for you if you support the network. And we also have outlined goals, things that we're trying to do, trying to achieve right now that we need help with. So you can see exactly what it is we're working on, why we need to have a certain amount of funding and again, what you get in exchange. So go check that out at patreon.com slash trekafilm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekafilm. And we would really love to have your support there. And we really thank you for taking time to go check that out. The other thing is, of course, our sponsor for the show, audible.com. We really appreciate Audible support each week. And each week, we like to recommend a book for you to pick up because as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free book of your choice just for trying the service. You just need to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and choose the book. And the one that I want to recommend today, Matthew, is Mosaic by Jerry Taylor because we're actually planning to cover this book here on the show in the coming months. So if you haven't read it, a great way for you to do it would be to get the audio version. You know, it's funny, Chris, because I was talking to, to Char and Tristan from To The Journey to the journey today, and uh, <laughs> we were just talking about wanting to do this book and getting together to do it. The best thing about this book, Chris, it's narrated by Captain Catherine Janeway herself, Kate Mulgrew. Mm-hmm. It's got enhanced sound effects and original score. I mean, this is the real deal. Not only that, but this is one of those books that teeters on the edge of canon because Mm -hmm. it's written by jerry taylor and a lot of the the kind of the background material that we got especially just in mosaic not necessarily pathways was used for the show and Mm -hmm. so this is a great way to kind of get the background information on uh, everybody's favorite female captain and Mm -hmm. what better way to do it than having it read by the captain herself well i've always taken this book as canon personally because If the person who created the show and the person who created the character is writing the backstory, you know, it's maybe not all of it appears on screen, but I consider it canon personally. So I'm looking forward to talking about this with you and Char and Tristan coming up. And for those of you who haven't read it, take this opportunity to get the audio version, listen to Kate Mulgrew tell you the story, and you'll be all set for when we cover it here on the show a couple of months from now. And again, the way you do that is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for the trial. If you decide at the end of the trial that Audible's not for you, there's nothing to lose, you'll get to keep Mosaic or whatever other book you choose. And when you try Audible, it really does help us keep the show coming to you every week. Again, audibletrial.com slash trekfm, and we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, Chris, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to be going through Mission Gamma, This Gray Spirit, and that is the next book in the Deep Space Nine relaunch as we've slowly been kind of working our way through. And this book really picks up on the some of the political intrigue on Deep Space Nine as it really escalates as Gol Mosset's 
warship. As we all know, he is Goldukat's brother. Mm-hmm. And he arrives on the station with an unexpected passenger, the Cardassian ambassador Natima Lang. Everybody will remember her as one of Quirk's former loves. And so very fun to have her on the station along with Ro, who is slowly but surely becoming Quirk's girlfriend yeah. um, in the book series, which is, I don't get it all. Um, <laughs> Daniel, if you're listening, Ro, really? She's hooking up with Quirk, okay? So anyway, um, and, and really this kind of creates um, some huge tensions. Uh, a lot of old wounds and old ghosts kind of reappear with having somebody who looks just like Goldicott back on the station. Well, not only looks and like him, but speaks like him. His mannerisms exactly. are the same. Everything, like everything yeah. about him is the same. Um, and along with that, uh, Kira is kind of discovering that the line between wh- who is her friend and who is her foe is, is a lot narrower than she might have imagined. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, meanwhile, in the Gamma Quadrant, the starship Defiant is kind of forging a very uneasy alliance with a very unusual species we'll talk about. And they have a very unique biological makeup that actually may be the key to the balance of the power in the region of the Gamma Quadrant but may also be the key to the problem that the Andorians have been having and that Shar is so much wanting to fix. And it's up to Ezri Dax and Shar to stave off a genocidal civil war. And so, Chris, uh, as we kind of jump into this gray spirit, um, any overall thoughts about the book itself? Besides the fact that I had trouble getting through the book... (laughs) Uh, Chris, I think we might have had some of the same issues. For you, what were some of the things that really jumped out to you that that made it hard to get through this one? Well, okay, so the on the on the positive side, my feeling about this book sort of started to decline as I went through the book. Like early on, I feel like, okay, this is great. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And then as we went through the book, I started feeling like I'm having more and more trouble getting through the story. What I thought was well done about it is that it feels like the show in that there's so many things going on. There are a number of really big issues at play here. There's stuff with Kira. There's the stuff with Bajor and the Federation. There's the stuff with Bajor helping Cardassia rebuild. Plus, you've got the stuff going on in the Gamma Quadrant that you mentioned with the Defiant. And I felt in that sense that it feels very much like the show. But on the other hand, it's it's so dense with material, and it's a big book. It's over 500 pages. And yet at the same time, you feel like maybe this book could have been 200 pages shorter without losing anything, and maybe it would have been easier to follow as the reader and more rewarding because it would have been a tighter story. Chris, I'm there with you. One, uh, as we talked about on the other side of the page, the um, book setup here for the ebook is not great. Um, the The breaks between scenes is terrible. It's well, the, very hard to tell. The when scene, a scene breaks, breaks are missing most of the time. So for those, you know, what we're so talking about is in a book where within a chapter you change scenes and you'll usually have three dots or three stars, you know, to divide the the scenes. I would say 90% of the scene changes in the ebook version of this book are missing and there's no space either. So if you're reading quickly, 
you just go into another scene like it's part of the same dialogue, which was really confusing. That and uh, Chris, um, I'm going to start with the bad. The prose is just off in this book. It, it this, The scene structure is, is not well handled, I don't think. Um, so if you're not paying attention, you can actually miss big things that happen. And there's a lot of tell and not show, um, mm-hmm. which is really frustrating in a book where you, you don't really... Um, show a scene happening you just have a character tell you about what happened yeah um i I think that's really frustrating and then on the good side like you said there's some there's some great stuff in the book that the whole revolving structure of of what's going on with bajor and they're trying to get into the federation but at the same time dealing with all of this uh with their relationship with cardassia and how that's going to work out the power struggle that's going on there, the the struggle that Kira is having, especially with Shakar, strangely enough, um, and where he stands on this, it, all of that is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there's some great stuff in there. But there's some things in here that I just, you could have cut out or, or made a lot less dense. Yeah. Um, the, the, the whole thing with the Andorian bond mates could have been cut down, yeah. you know. Um, and then honestly... What happens in the Gamma Quadrant has little to no effect whatsoever on almost anyone. So um, let me ask you this. This is something I was thinking about as I was reading it because we just had David Mack on last week to talk about Seekers. And you and I both agree that we like the idea of getting back to Star Trek where we're just exploring strange new worlds. And part of what's going on with Mission Gamma with the Defiant is that they actually are exploring strange new worlds while back in the Alpha Quadrant, you've got all of the usual DS9 religious and political intrigue going on. Do you think that... So in this book, when we're first there and we're first learning about the Eurythne and their world and their system and the oceans and their culture and everything... I'm thinking, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, this is something new and different and it's a strange new world thing. But then as it goes on, I'm wondering if Deep Space Nine novels are the place for this because you and I also uh, talked about on the other side of the page that the bit about Bajor and the Federation is probably the most interesting part of this book. And that's more true to what we got on this series. So is the Defiant seeking out strange new worlds in the Gamma Quadrant really what we want from DS9? Well, that's a great question. And I think I go back to the fact that, you know, the book that we just read previously to this, Twilight, Chris, was just freaking fantastic. It was a great book, And and Mm -hmm. what they were discovering in the Gamma Quadrant was so interesting and just kind of so out there that I was completely sucked into that side of the story. I had no problems following. So I think the main problem here that we run into, and I guess uh, the whole Eurythne system is a, is a caste system. It's, a, it's it, well, you know, just, we've seen this before, these kind of fragile caste systems. They're mm-hmm. set up with a hierarchy. You know, you have uh, here the houseborn that are ahead of, of the wanderers. To me, it felt very much like uh, what we see in Harry Potter with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the purebloods and the mudbloods, you know, except here it's the wanderers and the houseborns. And it the problem is, is that 
I've seen this done on Star Trek so many times in so many different books yeah. because, you know, what you're kind of driving at is this whole idea of the racism we've seen in our own world and, mm -hmm. and that we're really no better than each other. And, and really, the end of the story was they find out scientifically that the wanderers are the ones who are going to actually help the species continue. And if the houseborn continue their ways, they're going to inbreed so much that they'll destroy themselves. So, uh, I mean... Again, it's just something that's been, I feel like, done a lot. And so what we're seeing here is interesting only in the sense that it's helping Dax figure out who she is. But the actual culture, like, I'm like, meh. And I hate that word, but I just felt so meh about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it also reminded me of Dear Doctor, what's going on here. Now, oh, yes. Dear yes. Doctor aired in January of 2002, and this book was published in September of 2002. And I, I suspect that there's no connection whatsoever. But what's going on here with the Wanderers and the Houseborn, what, what they finally figure out about them and the genetic analysis that Char does, and the, the sort of solution to the problem, it's just what was going on with the Valakians and the Mink in Dear Doctor, where one race had this genetic problem that was becoming more and more of an issue that was going to lead to their extinction, while the race that was being held back were the ones that actually had the genetic potential to become the dominant species on the planet. Right, and except, you know, here, if the Houseborn and the Wanderers will come together they'll create an even stronger species instead mm -hmm. of the Valachians, the mink, where that wasn't a possibility. So there are okay, some differences, yeah. but I think you're right. I immediately thought of that as well, that I've I've totally seen this before. It's just playing out just slightly differently. Yeah. And then I think the main problem was is that when you get to the end of the story, the resolution to the story is kind of like fizzles out. Where like was you the barely resolution? even see a resolution. That, that's why I said that as I went through the book, my opinion of the book kept sliding down and down and down because the resolution, it was one of those things where they're still working on the problem, working on the problem, and then you turn the page. And not only have they already solved the problem, but now they're into the next stage of working with these people. It's like, what just happened here? Well, and it was so weird because, it, I mean, the end, you get Char giving a bunch of people kind of the scientific lecture the the well, he was the powerpoint presentation right, yeah. about you know where they are scientifically in yeah, this yeah. um and then you find out from one of the main wanderers that uh who's been with us in the whole story that she's going to be part of the other solution that Ezri had thought of which was colonies and mm -hmm. to send well, away she was, people she's being colonies. exiled so she doesn't really have a choice but Exactly, yeah. but that they were going to be doing this uh, idea, which was they also realized that if the Wanderers and the Houseborn are, are all procreating, their planet won't mm -hmm. really sustain that. So they are going to have to start calling. Well, yeah, because anyway. the population growth would be too much, and then the planet there's exactly. not enough kelp cakes for everyone. Yeah, so. You know, and and uh, there's nothing worse than not having a kelp cake when you wake up in the morning. Um, and so, but this all happens within a few paragraphs, and. Right. You've mm -hmm. set up this whole thing like this big, you know, look at it at, at like racism and and in this these underclass, this fragile caste system that we have, 
and and you kind of just dismantle it like that yeah like q snapped his fingers except it's more boring i think that was the problem that i came with is like this storyline just had no nothing to go for and then on top of that the other side of the storyline with the defiant yeah it's the most boring storyline ever (laughs) and then not only that but starfleet characters they don't get what they want so they just steal it yeah chris what the hell (laughs) well let's talk about the cast system just a little bit more so before we talk about the defiant i felt like the reason that it doesn't work is that you already mentioned Ezri and then there's Shar. And so I feel like the the author, Heather Darman, an, another problem here, and again, this was this was written in 2002, so many years have passed. This was Heather's first piece of professional prose. And so I think a lot of what we feel, how things don't fit together, comes from this was her first novel. You know, maybe if she wrote this today, it might be very different. So, but I, I feel like she went into it with this whole storyline about the wonders and the houseborn and the genetics and, and the negotiations. The Esri is a mediator in here. They talk about the other and the third with capital letters in the book, but you never really learn anything else about what those terms mean, which I found odd. Like if you set something like that up, I'm expecting to learn more about the mythology behind that. And there, there actually is an explanation. I should say there is like a two paragraph bit where they talk about it, but it wasn't enough. Like it's like, it's just there to let you know, well, this is why I use those terms, but nothing further about why they've been expecting this person to come and why they're there. That's how I felt anyway. But what I'm getting at is I feel like the whole storyline was set up for two reasons. One was to facilitate Esri finding herself and moving her closer to this command track that she's now heading down or moving her further down this command track that she's on. And to justify the whole Andorian storyline and why Shar wanted to go on the mission and to try to create a parallel between what's happening on this planet and their biological crisis that they're potentially going to die out with what's happening to the Andorians. And so what's happening to these people, these aliens, is never the focus of why the story is being written it's being used just to justify the storylines of Ezri and Shar. And so when you do that, it's really easy to gloss over things and give one paragraph to explain something that should be an entire chapter that we really should be diving into. Yeah, it's it really is just very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the whole other section for the Defiant crew with with Vaughn and, and Prin and, and Nog and the rest of them, it, again, it, it has absolutely no bearing really on the rest of the story all that much. And the Starfleet characters go, basically, the Defiant goes to a commerce area mm-hmm. with some of the Eurythni who have the ability to do commerce in this um, consortium, basically. Yeah, it's consortium. Um, you have the, to be a the, member, so... Yeah. 
you have to be a member. Yeah. Exactly. It's like going to Sam's Club. Right, yeah. Uh, or so, Costco. Exactly. So basically, to get the parts that they needed to repair the Defiant, they had to go to Costco, but they <laughs> left their membership card on the station. And now they're screwed. Damn it. I knew we made a mistake, right. Chris. <laughs> so they had to get See, a guest and, pass, a Eurythne guest pass. Well, and then the most frustrating thing is, is that what they want in trade, the traders don't want. And, and then, of course, they go to the black market to look for it as well. But the black market wants a cloaking device. And, and not the device. They just want the the schematics and everything, how to build it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're not going to give them that Except either. Nog was going to give it to them. Except Nog was going to give it to them. But I realized, well, and this is the problem with the, the pros, is that Nog is just a part of, of their decoyness. Well... To steal what they want, yeah, from the tr- the the actual honest traders. Which this again, seriously, Starfleet, we 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 don't get what we want, so we will just steal it from you. Right. Well, I, it's happened this, before, this, but was, that's not the way that this, you would expect them to act. Yeah, I mean, this is not the Enterprise in the the Delphic Expanse. On a mission to save the entire planet. This right. is just... Well, I mean, it's going to be a lot harder for us to get around the, the this part of the Gamma Quadrant because of, uh, you know, this network of... of um, yeah, these webs. This actually, yeah, weapon, this, this web, web that's basically, yeah. you know... It, okay, go back to Nog for a minute, though, because I, I want to ask you... Maybe, maybe it's what you're saying, that the prose was just too confusing. That later, yes, it's clear that Nog is part of this plan that that Vine has to get the the load, as it's called, of whatever's shooting out of this white hole. This is actually a terminology in the book, by the way. <laughs> it's right there on the page, Matthew. I know, Chris. And I, think, I know. And one of the Let's Starfleet officers says, "I'm not familiar with this term." So. But before that, I mean, Nog is saying to Vaughn, let's just give him the cloak. So at that point, you're saying he was playing along like he was supposed to be saying that to Vaughn because I took it as initially Nog being a Ferengi thought, just give him the cloaking schematics if that's what they want. Let's take what we want. You know, let's do business. And then later on, he's being part of a scheme. Yeah, and I, I'm with you. I, I think you're you're right on. I was talking okay. about later on and, and and not beforehand. And yeah, it again, this is just where the the prose fell apart, and and it just didn't work with the storyline. And and again, both sides of this storyline really don't do anything, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. We don't really get a clear resolution with Eurythne. And the Defiant is just off. I mean, you could just cut out half of that, what happened to them, and have it be a much part, like you said, you cut 100 pages of that storyline. Just don't even have them on that storyline. It doesn't matter. Well, so much of the time that they're actually there on the planet, I felt like I was in a Gaylord hotel. So, like, I, I used to have to go to a lot of of conventions for business and they often were held in these hotels like the Gaylord in Nashville or those types of like self-contained hotels where all the rooms are, you know, there's plants and flowers all over the place and they've got the big atrium in the middle and all. 
so much of the story on the planet is just descriptions of the guest rooms that they're staying in and the food that they're eating and such. So it really felt like you you weren't going anywhere with the story. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Um, but I think, Chris, let's finally move on. Okay, uh, let's to, talk to about something that. Yeah, this was, I think, um, just hands down... Uh, I think Heather Jarman just mm-hmm. nails Bajor mm-hmm. at, at this point in their history. Um, and I really think that when you look at it, their soul is on the edge. Mm-hmm. You know, Bajor has suffered a great loss with the occupation. Um, it's suffered great loss now. The emissary is gone. It's suffered because of the actions that Kira took with the text that she leaked out, which has caused... Um, religious upheaval and of course her attainer and they have been forced into this this place where they are trying to figure out how they become part of the federation and also what do they do with their relations with Cardassia and should they normalize those relations before they become part of the federation and and do the hard work or they just take the easy road and wait till they're part of the federation Mm -hmm. and I just thought that this was a fantastic storyline because we're really moving Kira forward. You can really see, you know, Kira has spent so much time dealing one-on-one with Cardassians. You know, I think her relationship with Garrick and Damar really comes into play here. Mm-hmm. Um, the experiences she had on Cardassia during the end of the, the, the last season of Deep Space Nine. You can see the change that's happened in her and Azrem, who's the uh, second uh, minister there as well. And yet somebody like Shakar, it turns out, is having a very hard time uh, forgiving Cardassia and, and being willing to do the hard work it, it would take to normalize the relations uh, so, with Cardassia and Bajor before they become part of the Federation. So do you feel like Shakar, he's okay with them helping Cardassia if they're doing it as a member of the Federation where it's actually the Federation that's helping Cardassia. That way he doesn't have to feel that the Bajoran people themselves are directly helping the Cardassians who occupied their planet for half a century. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, because I'm just wondering what is his reasoning? All this stuff he explains to Kira about because Kira wants to do it before they're part of the Federation, and yet mm-hmm. he wants to put it off. He somehow has this whole story about how they're not compatible, or mm-hmm. you know, why take the well, harder path when you can take the easier path? Mm-hmm. Well, he says, you know, then this is I, I loved at the end of the book, she has the conversation with Shakar, and he just says it plain out to her. He says, Part of being a leader is choosing between equally good options. Mm-hmm. Forging peace with Cardassian as a Bajoran nation is a good choice, but a simpler path, one that recognizes our relationship with Cardassia will be normalized when we join the Federation, is also a good choice. Why choose the more complicated option? And Kira says to him, because we aren't whole as a people without closure. Mm-hmm. And I love that they talk about the gift that they've been given, the, the paintings of Seal that they've been given back. And his reaction to that just blew my mind. Uh, and this is, again, where I think that uh, Heather does a great job. He says, all those pretty pictures, Narice, they came from Ducat's bastard. Right. Because Ducat took a married woman from her home and her children and raped her. A great artist was born. And I'm not one who believes that the ends justify the means. 
Kira says, what does Dial have to do with peace negotiations? Mm -hmm. And he says this back to her. The Cardassians really don't want peace. They came here with their gift. He spat the word. Right. To remind us exactly who we are to each other. Right. And I didn't get the masters that because I did not. We're slaves. What? I was like, yeah. I, I thought I can see what where he's coming from. And I think but, it's a loss of perspective. Right, right. Yeah, I can see where he's coming from. But when he when that conversation, I I did not get his reaction either because I can see where he's coming from if I think of him as one individual person and I try to think, how could one person see it that way? Okay, I can understand how one individual could look at the situation given their own background and read it that way. But everything that actually happened in the story, I didn't know, I didn't understand how Shakar was seeing it that way because I never felt that that's what Maset was doing. That's not what the Cardassians were doing. Like, I really feel like Maset wants to bridge the gap somehow. You know, I, I think that this is the whole kind of like crux of the issue, and, and this is where the Bajoran soul is really kind of laid bare where people feel like um, they stand with Bajor. And I was having this discussion with Christopher Bennett on the Trek BBS about Kirk and his line about the Klingons mm -hmm. when he says, let them die. Yeah. And then you can tell he immediately just regrets having said that. Mm -hmm. Because he's dealing with the unresolved anger he has around his son's death and them killing him and and the, the whole political landscape changing around him and everything going haywire right as he's about to retire. I mean, Kirk's not really one for dealing with his emotions in the first place. And so it's all coming to the surface. This here with, with I think, um, Shakar is the unresolved anger he has with the Cardassian people. And it he means it. I, I think it's ugly his mm -hmm. soul right now when it comes to the Cardassians. And I, I think part of that is that he hasn't had the experience of dealing with the Cardassians the way Kira has. Right, yeah, yeah. A lot of the Bajoran people haven't. And she's seen this this goodness in them. You know, she's seen, uh, you know, obviously Garrick is a morally ambiguous character. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, he's willing to put his life on the line Don't, for his people and, and even betray them because he knows it's what's best for them. Uh, same thing with Dumar, um, her relationship with Zial. I think all these things really change her perspective because she knows Cardassians. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that his reaction, though, is incompatible with his role as a religious leader? Well, you know, Shakar's not a religious leader, though, anymore. He's just first minister of Bajor, so he, he doesn't have any... But his know. lifetime was is with the religion. It seems like a, a quick flip. Like, if that's been your life, it doesn't seem like that should just go away. But I guess that's what political office does to people, right? Uh, yeah, I, I think that... The, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, again, I think that this is... I think Heather really nails perfectly... One, you said political office changes people and, and really brings out sometimes the worst in people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's happening for Shakar, unfortunately. Um, you know, he, he's becoming protective of Bajor in, in a 
bad way. And and the other part is just not willing to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, keep grinding that axe in your mind. It'll always be there. And I think that's what he's continued to do. Yeah. Uh, and it's unfortunate that that's happened. Whereas, you know, who would have thought that Kira at the beginning of the, of the show would become a character who would be at this point where mm-hmm. she doesn't even recognize somebody like Shakar. Mm-hmm. You know, I also felt a little bit like the expectations, especially on the Cardassian side, that this cooperation could move forward easily was a little bit, I don't know, out of place. I mean, we're talking seven years, and after everything that happened, I feel like you shouldn't expect things to go smoothly after seven years. Like, it takes more time than that to to heal, for the two sides to heal from something like that. I think it speaks to the the desperation of the the Cardassians Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, But I think it does speak to the desire for change. And and, uh, Natima even says to, to Kira... Um, in, in one of the scenes that, you know, our, our people will be forced into becoming who they used to be if there isn't a way forward, you know, that they're going to resort to their old behaviors if, if they don't feel like there's any way anybody to reach out and help them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is a huge thing because, you know, even personally in my own life, if if I don't believe that anybody is on my side or, or thinks that I can change, mm-hmm. I will just live up to their expectations and I will just do what, you know, everybody expects me to do. And if that's just to be the kind of the screw up or whatever, then I will do that because it takes people believing that you can change a lot of time mm-hmm. to help you change. Right. Because you then believe it about yourself. I think the Cardassian people are definitely trying to do that. They're trying to move forward. They're trying to show the the, the galaxy that they can change and be different. But they also need somebody to reach back. And and um, I think that's why they're reaching to the people that they hurt the most. Yeah. Because they want to to, to find a way to heal that so together. Do you feel that that's why they decided to use Zial and her art as the catalyst for this? Because Zial represents something that the Cardassians could become that they, they aren't. You know, even Quark talks about how she was unique and that she's the only Cardassian who ever called him Sir or called him by his name. Yeah, I think uh, I think that that is. But um, I think also when we watch um, Deep Space Nine, we also see that there were other Cardassians who became that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I think Garrick's one. I think Demar yeah, is the other. Totally different case for me, though. You know, he's a an outlier. Yeah, I and I agree, um, but I, I do think too, Damar really was that character. Mm-hmm. He, he was the new Cardassian. In fact, yeah, he reminded end, me yeah. a lot yes. of the characterization mm-hmm. that we got from Zial. I think he took on. Mm-hmm. He became very humble and 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 more soft spoken, mm-hmm. but strong and and courageous. I, you know, so I think what I loved here too is that she uses the legacy of Zial. I think perfectly. Um, to kind of show where Bajor can go, yeah, um, yeah. But Bajor has to be willing to 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 let go of their pain because, you know, if they keep holding on to it and kind of 
grinding that axe, they'll do nothing but hurt themselves anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So, but I'm with you. I I really liked the use of Zial. I really liked the storyline, this uh, potential for Cardassia and Bajor to work together. And then, as we already talked about Shakar and his view on not continuing to help Cardassia and not coming together with them and putting that off instead until Bajor becomes part of the Federation and then the treaties between the Federation and Cardassia will then cover Bajor as well. So one thing that we can talk about here is what does it mean for Bajor to be part of the Federation? And he mentions the challenge of preparing an entire planet to become part of yet a different governmental structure. Well, and it it kind of left me the the question, Chris, is this just like Federation domination? Like you just kind of, they come in and your whole government changes. I didn't, that didn't make sense to me because you're part of the galactic government yeah. overseeing everything. You're part of the Federation, but I, I felt like, world governments have very much um a say in how their their whole world is well, they run do yeah i mean th- those so I, I didn't feel like that changes all that much one thing that is talked about in this book and, and even in the previous book is that the bajoran militia will be absorbed into starfleet right right so there are and also talked about in here i, I believe it's kira right who's concerned about how the federation would view these negotiations if they felt that Bajor was taking a position based on a religious position or a vendetta against the Cardassians. But overall, this is why, like you said, the way the Federation generally works, as we usually see it, is that while members of different planets can become Starfleet officers and there is cooperation, it's it's a loose confederation, I feel, in that which each planet still maintains very much its own identity and its own culture. And there's no directive really saying, like, this is what you can or can't do other than, like, a basic bill of rights that all citizens are expected to have. Although I think even there, it's a very, it's a much looser enforcement than what we would have in our own world because you're dealing with, completely unique cultures, not like the difference between human cultures, which are small in comparison to these other worlds. So I felt like Shakar was basically just using this as an excuse the whole time. Well, and I think you're right. He doesn't really want to do what's hard Mm -hmm. for the Cardassian people. And I think Kira makes a great point. We need closure. And this is a great way for us to close the book on everything that happened to us for the last 50, almost 60 years. Mm-hmm. This is the best way for us to do that. And it, if they do it that way, it speaks to the best nature of the Bajoran people. Really, the ideals, I think, that, that their religion kind of espouses. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it was an interesting idea for me of just kind of what does it mean to be right. a part of the Federation and, and have your own planetary government. But I don't see it as Federation domination because, again, I think he's just using it as an excuse where it's sort of like, well, we'll go along with whatever the Federation tells us to do 
once we're a member. It's, it's a way for him to, as you said, not, not make the hard choice. He says they're both good choices in the, the bit that you quoted earlier, but I don't really see it in the way that he did. I, I see him as trying to take the easy way out so he doesn't mm-hmm. have to face up to anything himself, doesn't have to worry about that closure. Well, um, I think one of the other really interesting parts of the of the book, and it does take place in the Gamma Quadrant, and the the main part of that story uh, revolves around Dax and her desire to mediate this discussion between the Houseborn and the Wanderers, and and how she's relying on so many different parts of her host nature to be able to do that instead of necessarily acting out of herself mm-hmm. and struggling really to find her equilibrium. And I appreciate it at the end of the book when she's talking to Julian saying that she hasn't quite found it yet. She realizes that she understands that. Um, and I really liked their interaction because he, you know, he reminds her, look, all the things that you did to, to kind of find a solution here, came from Ezri in the end. They they mm-hmm. didn't come from Curzon couldn't have done that. Lita, uh, all these other hosts, they, Audrid, they wouldn't have been responsible for this. You are. So I really liked their interaction. I liked um, her kind of struggling with this. I think it's really interesting, mainly just because we'd never gotten this before with any Trill, because the only one we've ever really seen is, is Gen Zia, and she right. had no problems with this. Um, She's uber but confident. I, I thought it... Exactly, exactly. But I also thought one of her main struggles here is that she feels like she can't live up to mm-hmm. the other hosts that she's had. Mm-hmm. When she looks at Gen Zia or Curzon or any of these other hosts, she just she feels inadequate. And I really liked that because how many of us have kind of felt like we are inadequate to those around us? Or to maybe some sort of predecessor we might have had, like a you know grandparents or parents or... I mean, you know, heck, if your parents are doctors and and you work at a comic book shop, you know, it's it's you can feel like you can't live up to that. So I, I really just kind of appreciated Heather really working Dax through this because I thought that that was a, a a great aspect that we hadn't seen in one of the other books before. Yeah, when she's talking to Julian at the end, she says, "Honest Dax's past hosts made incredible contributions to the Federation. Books could be written about Curzon and Jadzia alone." But then the superlative Jadzia is followed up with Ezri Tegan, who didn't want to be joined in the first place. I'm kind of like the placeholding host until some brilliant initiate can receive Dax after I die. That's kind of the way that she's feeling, right? But I thought, you know, Julian made her understand that the things you did are unique. Your your past hosts didn't do the things you just did. They didn't have those experiences. Yeah, and I, I thought that that was... Um, really good because a lot of times you know as as people we can't see what's either worst or best about us Mm -hmm. and at this point Ezri's having trouble seeing what's best about her she's her own worst critic and the relationship with Julian here I think is is really nice and and really beautiful Um, in fact I love when he gets back from you know being on the defiant and they're walking down the hallway and there's a nice little scene she grabs his hand as they're walking and, and it's just I, you know, I got kind of tired about the back and forth nature that they've had. Right. And I yeah. felt like they've found some equilibrium here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said up front, I feel like the majority of the storyline that's happening 
with the aliens on the other world and their uh, civil war and their caste system and their potential extinction and all is just there so that Esri has something that she can act as a mediator in to kind of challenge herself. And I also liked that being there. And I think that it's needed in order to keep furthering her character. There are times where I felt like maybe some of what was going on with her, like that time could have been used for other things with her instead of, I felt like the actual mediation part maybe where she's actually having to go over details and make decisions and all was not expanded as much as it could have been for that part of the story. And there was at times I felt like too much referencing the past hosts where if I, if I want her, like, I guess for me, I can already imagine what's going on in her head, how she's feeling about her past hosts. I don't necessarily need to have the past hosts and their past actions referenced over and over and over for me to understand what's going on with Esri. I want to see a little bit more of her doing it instead of, of just naming off past hosts in different situations. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that that would have been something that would have been helpful with the story. It would have just um, made that storyline even better, I think. But it's still yeah, a good it, storyline. Stronger, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Well, lastly, Chris, and just uh, thought-wise, uh, we had some great Andorian fight scenes. <laughs> we did. Um, Ro and, and, and some Andorians really get into yeah. it. It quirks, what I thought was great. I mean, there's nothing like some, you know, uh, Ro kicking an Andorian's ass. I liked fantastic. after Ro takes out that Andorian, then she asks Quark, could I have a glass of water? She's like, still got the Andorian pinned down. She asks for a quick glass of water and then she goes on with her business again. So yeah, don't, awesome. don't get in a fight with Ro. <laughs> no, I, I don't, I, I wouldn't. Um, so kind of this whole Andorian crisis thing has really been revolving around Char and his bond mates. Yeah. And in this book, Thriss is having the hardest time because her and Char have kind of entered a part of, of their relationship outside of the rest of the bond that's created, as, as they talk about in the book, which I thought was kind of interesting, a link between them that the other bondmates don't have with with Char or Thriss at this point because they've engaged in, in some activities, we'll call them, this is a family podcast, um, that uh, aren't sanctioned yet. Mm -hmm. until Would this be extra after... bondal activities? Extra, extra bondal activities. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, be careful with those. And because of this, she's really suffering with, uh, you know, this this depression um, that that's come over her. And I thought that that was an, a nice touch to see Star Trek book deal with the idea of depression that, you know, this happens and her having to go to therapy and everything. I, I thought that part was uh, at least nice that they touched upon. But the whole storyline, um, I, I didn't need as, as drawn out as it was. Yeah. I felt like it take, took up too much Definitely. space in the book. It's a lot and of again, the book. Um, it's, it's very sad, the ending of what happens to her. But I, I don't care. Yeah. Well, Is that I, terrible to say? I almost missed what was going on because earlier you talked about a lot of telling and not showing what's happening where big events are condensed into a couple of lines where if you're going to build up to it, 
then it should pay off. I mean, it's like in music, you're building to a crescendo. But instead, it's like you're building up here, you're building up here, and suddenly it's pianissimo again. And it happens, and you don't really realize what's going on until you're into it, and then you realize, oh, so, oh, that just happened. And then you go back and you reread that section again, which is not the way that I would expect something like that to be paid off, especially considering how much of this book is spent on this whole Andorian bondmate thing. I find the the overall issue of the Andorian reproductive crisis, I think is very interesting. But what's happening between these bondmates has still failed to connect with me. Like you said, I just really don't care what's going on with these particular people and that's despite the fact that there's page after page after page after page of conversation between these characters. And I still feel like, okay, what's going on on The Defiant? Or what's going on with Ezri? Or what's going on with Shakar and, and Kira? That's what I want to know about. Well, I think it's probably, too, that they just haven't made these characters interesting enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're, there's nothing... They are defined by their situation. By basically, they are being defined by their sexuality, yeah. and and that alone, it, and that has made them very boring. Does it feel like there's an Andorian soap opera taking place while all these bigger issues are going on around you? Kind of. Um, and again, they're just being defined by this one thing instead of all the other things that make them who they are. Well, they are. do and make I, I think... an effort. Is it Thris? They they make an effort to talk about her background, her medical research and her education and all that, mm-hmm. and how all that's yeah. going to be pointless if Shar doesn't come back in time. So there's a little bit of an effort to to round the character out a bit, but it still didn't connect with me. Yeah, and and it's just unfortunate because it is a very sad end to the story and it has a huge effect mm-hmm. as we move farther on in um the the deep space nine relaunch storyline and i i don't want anybody to think i'm just kind of some heartless jerk i it is moving to have this happen to any character yeah, in the story yeah. i'm just saying i wish it had been done better by having these characters mean more to me by making them more interesting well if a character is going to die and it's going to impact you, you have to care about that character. Right. That's just basic writing. So, and, and, and like yeah. you, I'm trying to keep track of which Andorian is talking. So I clearly am not yet caring enough about any of those Andorians to really feel the weight of the suicide at the end of the book. I agree, Chris. Um, so final thoughts uh, on the book itself? Um, you know, I, again, I said up front that my opinion of the book kept sliding as I went through it. I started out thinking, this is a great continuation of what we read last time. There's so much going on here. It feels like the series. And then it slid down a star for me. And then I got towards the end. And the resolutions just didn't pay off. They were all whimpers. Like there's all this stuff building up. There's what's going to happen with Ezri's mediation and Shar getting the DNA sample so that he can figure out a solution for these people. What's going to happen to the Defiant? Are they going to get what they need to fix the ship? Are they going to be able to leave? What's going on with the burned Cardassian flag and the knife through the chair and all the vandalism of Zial's art and all that? 
And then I feel like the payoff of every single thing was this little whimper at the end of the book, leaving me wondering, did that just get resolved? Did that just get resolved? Did that just get resolved? Oh yeah, it did. And it's just not what I expect with all the buildup. And, and, with, and with a 500 plus page book as well, you've got so many pages to work with. So in the end, I would say it's, it's a so-so book. It has a lot of great ideas in it. And there are parts of it that are really well done. And then there are parts of it that are not very well done. And so in the end, uh, I think that I would just give it three kelp cakes, which is actually three more kelp cakes than I personally want to eat. You know, what was so interesting is I was creating the outline, Chris, and and thinking through the book, and and I I finished it last night, and and I kind of went to sleep thinking about it and woke up this morning thinking about it, and all this for our outline poured out of me, and the theme for the book really I saw was was equilibrium. You know, Bajor is is reeling from the Holocaust it suffered and and the religious upheaval that, that they've experienced recently. Um, Dax is really on her quest um, to integrate Esri with the rest of the hosts and, and find equilibrium for herself. In the story, the Eurythni are completely unequal right now, but mm-hmm. maybe through science and uh, they might find a reason to to finally have some equality. And, and lastly, the Bondmates are completely all on you know unequal fo- footing because of of the the illicit nature of the relationship that Shar and, and Thriss have had, and, and it's created a huge problem for them. And so trying to find this equilibrium, and unfortunately, I don't think that Heather Jarman's ever able to find her equilibrium with the storylines. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some amazing parts of the story. I, again, I love the parts with Kira. The legacy of Zial, I think, is perfectly set up in this book and used very well. But all in all, it's the, it's the weakest of the relaunch for me so far. Yeah, me too. And I think what it is is that it suffers completely from that middle book syndrome. There's a lot of things that go on in this book, but not a lot that happens. Yeah. And in fact, really, I just kind of want to jump into the next book, Cathedral, immediately because I'm hoping to get some kind of resolution to what's going on um, with mm-hmm. the characters. Yeah. And I just feel like this could have been maybe a 200-page book a much tighter emphasis would have helped um, it, and it, we would have gotten a better book. Yeah, it, so, it really felt like she was trying to write a thick book, like trying to to jack up the word count. That's I actually had that feeling like these are big books, these Mission Gamma books. This one needs to be big because, yeah, it could have been could have been 300 pages. Yeah. So, you know, all in all, I'd probably give this um, maybe out of five uh two and a half uh, row ass kickings. <laughs> so. Wow. All right. So we'll see. I'm, I'm with you. I, I, I want to jump right into Cathedral to find out what's happening next because the storyline for Cathedral sounds much more interesting than this gray spirit was. All right. Well, that is this gray spirit, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. We're on the same page. Yes. High five. This is creepy. Yeah. <laughs> we actually did it, we too. Actually you guys to do a missed high it. five through the camera, so that was <laughs> embarrassing, but whatever. Continuing mission. I feel like this, like that's a really great idea for a stoner movie, 
So <laughs> maybe for the next project. I didn't know. And the name of the film will be Giant Green Lazy Susan. There you go. Earl Grey. VHS Star Trek interactive oh, board game. I'm so glad you the brought humans this up. have taken over the Enterprise. You now have 30 minutes to stop me. <laughs> <laughs> the Ready Room. He says, I think your compassion for this species is overriding your judgment. And Archer says, my compassion guides my judgment. Mm-hmm. And I really like that line because I felt like that really just kind of sums everything up. The Orb. So imagine we didn't have Opaka. Imagine we had Kai Wynn from the very beginning. How do you think the setup of the series would have been? Axanar, the official podcast. So is the full-length Axanar going to be in the same style, the same documentary style as Prelude to Axanar? And the answer is no. No, absolutely not. Axanar itself will be a full-length movie, a feature movie, just like you would, you know, any other Star Trek movie or other movie. To the journey! Cable is definitely more suited toward a niche show like Star Trek is. Compared to broadcast, yes, I think it's... Yeah, absolutely. It's much more probable that we would see it on, say, uh, AMC than we would on NBC. Commentary, Trek stars. When Star Trek 2009 came out, I made a joke to somebody at some point that J.J. Abrams got all of his lens flares from Close Encounters Surplus. Yeah. But they just didn't use them all, and he just bought them at some sort of, maybe a garage sale or something. Warp 5. You know pretty well which way the insectoids and the reptilians are yeah. are going to come down on any issue. It's it's left up to the indecisive one. Instead of the, the 12 angry men, it's the 6 angry Zindi. Melodic Treks. Now, as I mentioned, he wrote and conducted the scores for two episodes of Star Trek Enterprise in the second season. They are Kanama and Regeneration. And Regeneration is one of the best episodes of Star Trek Enterprise ever, in my humble opinion. Literary Treks. We're trying to keep it light. We're trying to keep it personable. We're trying to keep it fun. If Vanguard, you know, was all about being the Battlestar Galactica reboot of, of Star Trek, this is more about trying to be the Eureka or the Warehouse 13. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find them everywhere you get your podcasts. We're all over the place. Just search for Trek.fm or the name of the show you want to listen to and you'll find us there. And be sure to grab the master feed because that contains every episode of every show that we do, plus some other special content from time to time. While you're getting your podcasts, don't forget to leave a review for us. It's a great way to help us out, to help us find new listeners, for new listeners to find us in the iTunes store. Plus, we really love to hear what you think about the show. Other ways you can share your thoughts on the show is to send us a message through our contact form at trek.film contact. Just choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that'll come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also find us on social media on Twitter. Our username is trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on G+, and you can send us a voicemail by going to speakpipe.com slash trekfm or just looking in the left sidebar on the show page on our website. And all you need to do that is the microphone on your webcam, your smartphone, or your tablet, and you can upload that message to us right there from the page. Another way you can support the things we're doing here on Trek of Film and help us keep literary treks coming to you every week is to check out Patreon. 
which I talked about a little bit in the news segment today, go over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash TrekFM, and you can see our goals and our benefit levels and all the different perks that you can get in exchange. And again, there's going to be some exclusive content on there as well. And those who know me know I don't like the word exclusive. I think it's overused to the point of having no meaning these days. But we are going to have some content that's only going to be available there to our patrons. So check that out, patreon.com slash trekfm. So Matthew, when you're not in the hollow suite practicing your self-defense tactics for the next time Roe comes after you, where can people find you? Well, Chris, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. So if you enjoyed our Deep Space Nine relaunch talk, man, you are going to enjoy The Orb. So check us out there. And in fact, Chris, I just want to plug, I was reading a great article today, and I I saw it on Den of Geek, and they were talking about uh, the 10 reasons why Deep Space Nine is the most realistic Star Trek show. And so I just wanted to plug that because... If you want to understand why Deep Space Nine is so awesome, you need to be listening to The Orb. Chris and I have the best time talking about Deep Space Nine. I I think it's just, honestly, it's one of the highlights of my week is getting to talk about that show with you, Chris. So I hope people will join us there. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Now, Chris, when you're not longingly looking at Roe as she roundhouse kicks another Andorian in the face, where can we find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. That's probably the best place to get in touch with me because I am a Twitter guy. And my username is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with the Y. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. Feel free to hit me up there and send me a friend request. And I have my own website, cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, of course, I do The Orb with Matthew. And beyond that, I do a lot of other shows. There's Warp 5, The Ready Room, Continuing Mission, Matter Stream, Hyper Channel. And I do the official Star Trek Axanar podcast with Alec Peters. So you can find me in all those places if you want to hear more of my thoughts about Star Trek. Before we let you go, we would also like to remind you about Audible.com and the fact that you can get Mosaic absolutely free just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. And if you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep that book. So there's nothing to lose. But when you support Audible, it does help us keep literary treks coming to you every week. So if you love the show and you're not a customer already of Audible, go give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank them for their support of the show and the network. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. I'm going to transition in a minute. I'll cut this out. I just wanted to mention, talking about typos in the book, uh-huh. page 474, it says, Uncle Cork always says the four hungers are food, comma, sexy power, and money. Oh, God. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> so the oh, Y gosh. is supposed to be a comma. <laughs> oh. Oh. All right, here we go. That's funny.